Good morning, Emmanuel. Good to see you all. We've been reading these days from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's listen to God's word together. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice 
in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Often, or not very often, but every now and then when I'm reading Christian books or listening to Christian teaching, I hear the admonition to not treat God like Santa Claus. Now you can imagine uh, why that's relevant. The way kids think of Santa Claus, Santa Claus really isn't a, a meaningful part of their lives most of the time, but a certain season comes and they want things and And there's this idea that there's someone that if you just ask for things from, they'll give it. And so it's natural that kids would love Santa Claus. But what what does that love look like? Uh, We mature out of belief in Santa Claus. But the challenge that's proposed to us is functionally as God in your life in a similar way, not really integrated, not really connected. Are there certain seasons when you need to ask for things? And that's the nature of your relationship with God. I think it's a good challenge because many of us will find, yeah, no matter what our our religious background or experience is, God is sort of out there and he's mystical and magical and maybe we have positive thoughts about God. But really the only relationship we have with God is when we're asking for things. And so the warning is don't make God in the image of Santa Claus. Um, What I think is kind of interesting though, how does that happen? How does that happen that we could start to conceive of God like Santa Claus, well, it sort of goes both ways. I wonder how is it that we've divinized Santa Claus in a certain sense? You know, there was this figure, St. Nicholas in, in uh, I don't know, fourth or fifth century, uh, a faithful man who was generous and gave gifts, uh, especially to the poor without uh, telling them. And this tradition of somebody who is generous, um, inspired, which it should, what what a model of Christian virtue, somebody who takes what they have and shares it, but not in an egotistical way, not in a controlling way. But how did Santa Claus take on such mythical uh, imagery? And so you read in the Bible that God comes from the heavens riding on the clouds. And how is it that we have this figure, Santa Claus, who comes through the sky in a sleigh, and somehow he's able in one night to be in all places on the globe, to deliver presents to children in Bolivia and Laos and Ghana. And so, so how, did, how did Santa Claus become not simply this generous giver, but this, this figure from the sky uh, who comes? How is it that we have a song in the 20th century, Santa Claus is coming to town, that, that says, you know, he knows when you've been sleeping. Uh, he knows when you've been bad or good. So you better be good for goodness sake. How did Santa Claus become one who sees what you're doing in private. And how is it that that he's become the one who could reward good behavior and punish bad behavior? And you can see how parents are tempted to to see the usefulness of Santa Claus because what do we want for our kids? To a certain degree, we wanna control them, not in a malicious way. And the only thing we know is to reward what's good and to threaten them with punishment. Is that all that we have? Well. I think that tells us something about what we've done with Santa Claus, how we treat one another, and inevitably how we conceive of God. At the end of the day, you may not believe in Santa Claus, and maybe you're not sure what you believe about God, but odds are what most of us naturally believe about God is similar to what we teach our kids about Santa Claus, that he's, he'll give you things, 
He sees what's going on. He'll punish you if you do bad. He'll reward you if you do good. So get on with your life and occasionally turn to him and ask for things. Is that the nature of your spiritual life? And while it's not that none of those things are true, I think most of us would see there's something central missing. That if that's uh, how we conceive of God, if that's the, the nature of how we walk through this world, then we're missing who God is and what is really offered to us. God is not, God is generous, but he's not simply an occasional giver. God does stand with those who are good and bless them, but he's not simply a divine judge. But, but when Jesus teaches us uh, about what the scriptures say and what all the commandments mean, he says the, the summary is really that you're to love God and you're to love people. And so, so we may love God in the way that children love Santa Claus, but, uh, but there's a, a, a greater, deeper love that we're meant to have that's meant to be life-giving. And what hinders that? What is it that, that keeps us trapped in that kind of theology? Well, often it's, it's the fact that we love things more than God or more than people. And when we're looking at, at Ecclesiastes 5 today, uh, I want one of the ways that we understand this passage to be what we read in verse 10, uh, the language of one who loves money. And I think that uh, that's part of the theology that's underneath the chapter, because the chapter has these different parts in it that aren't necessarily connected, but they all arise out of this concern that Koheleth, the, the guy that we're reading about, uh, who's sharing with us in Ecclesiastes, has. And, and part of it, he focuses there on the fact that we love money. And if you go to Emmanuel, every now and then, every year or two, I'll say something to the effect of uh, the concern in the Bible about loving money is because the, the, the way the Bible presents the way we're to live is we're to love God and we're to love people. And God fills the world with things and we're to use those things and enjoy them. The problem if we love money is we will use God and we will use people. And we get that mixed up. And so, so why does God become this figure that's Santa Claus-like? Well, because even as adults, we haven't outgrown that childish instinct, that self-serving that says, I want things and I'll take what I can through my own effort and hard work. But occasionally, if there's something bigger, I just need to ask for it. And I'll be glad for the person uh, I ask if he gives it to me. If that's all of our theology, we're, we're fundamentally disoriented in the world, and therefore we will, will be devoted to the wrong things. So I'm using the language devotion today. Part of the problem of love of money is we find that we trust money. We depend on money. We hope in money. Uh, the worst thing that could happen is financial ruin for some of us. And that devotion is uh, the wrong focus in life because money is not a thing to be loved. It's a thing to be used. And if you're devoted to money, God, who is to be loved, will be one who's used. People who are to be loved will be used. And so what I want to talk about today is how dissatisfying a life will be if we don't love God and people, but instead we love things. And so I want to talk about two things. One is what, I, what I'm calling destructive devotion, a, a kind of devotion where you're devoted to things, you hope in them, you trust in them, but you don't love God and people. But then I want to talk about a life-giving devotion. What happens when you do love God and people? How does that set things right? So I want to begin with destructive devotion. The passage we're looking at begins with a warning in verse one. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Uh, part of the, the teaching is going to be to show us something 
to make sure that we're not foolish. So guard your steps. Don't, don't be like a fool rushing in before God, uh, going in with your preconceived thoughts, filled with things you want to say. But realize that when we're drawing near to God, uh, we should slow down and humble ourselves. And so if we don't, if, if we don't love God, and if we don't love people, and if we love things, it will, it will distort and destroy all of those relationships, our relationship with God, people, and things. And so I'm going to talk about each of those three quickly. Uh, so first, our relationship with God will be uh, destructive <laughs> if we love things. And the only thing that we conceive of is that God is a means to those things. And so uh, in this, the, the particular problem in view in the first seven verses in Ecclesiastes 5 is, is not simply general worship, but it's talking about going to the house of God, which would have been the temple. And the person who's filled with words because they're described as a dreamer, somebody has all these aspirations for what they want in their lives, and they see God as a means to an end, and so they make vows. Now, a vow in the Bible... Um, because of the, uh, you read the, the teachings of Jesus, because of the importance of truthfulness, if you're going to make a promise, if you're going to make a commitment, you keep it. Jesus would say you're better off not making the promise. That, that, that's an agreement with, with Ecclesiastes 5. And it's not that vows were completely unacceptable, but the picture we get here is the, is the foolish person, verse 3, the, the person with many words, the person who comes in so desperate for something that they're going to appeal to God and make a promise treating God sort of like God is a business. Here's a deal we could enter into. And so uh, verse five says, it's better that you don't, don't vow than you should vow and not pay. You, you don't want to try to make some sort of promise where you, you're going to manipulate God. Now, in view is the fool who so wants something that they'll go and they'll plead with God to get it. We see many cases in the Bible of people who are not foolish, but who are pleading with God and who make vows. People who have something that they really want that's a good thing, and they're, they're troubled, and their life suffers because they don't have it. And God doesn't treat them like fools and, and send them away. God engages them. But in those circumstances, if you read those examples in the Bible, uh, there's a reverence. There, there's, there's a sense in which coming before God and saying, God, here's this thing that I want, and only you can give it. And, and I make a promise that if you give me this, here's what I will do. Uh, Jesus warns us not to assume that that's how we have to relate to God, but but when people have, God honors that. He sees their longing and their desperation. But what's in view here is more like what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, the person who thinks that God needs to be manipulated, that God is like other people, that we could trick him. And, and that's to completely misunderstand God. And when, when you're so devoted to things that you're willing to just barge into God's presence with a list of demands and promises of what you can keep, you will miss out on the greatness of who God is and and the meaningfulness of what it looks like to walk with God in life. There's um, <clears throat> a movie from many years ago, 1978, with Burt Reynolds. There, I, I won't mention the name of the movie just because there's a spoiler alert, but odds are if you haven't seen it by now, it's uh, not high on your list. But uh, there's a scene in which Burt Reynolds uh, is playing a character who uh, despairs of life and decides to end his life. And so he goes to the beach and he swims out into the ocean. And he gets a good distance from the shore and he turns around and he suddenly has the realization he wants to live. And so the scene is showing him in the water, but you're hearing the dialogue in his, in his mind. And so the voiceover is saying, wait a second, I don't want to die. 
I want to live. And he, and he suddenly goes to pleading with God. And he says, Lord, I can't make it back. I don't have the strength. I need you. Help me. And then he starts a bargaining process. He says, Lord, if you give me the strength to back, get back, I will keep the Ten Commandments. I won't murder. I won't commit adultery. And then he stops and he says, I will learn the Ten Commandments and then I will keep them. And then he goes on saying, I won't cheat people in business. I won't, send, I won't sell somebody a, a house by a lake unless there's actually a lake there, uh, giving an indication of how he does things. And he, and he goes to this bargaining process. And he says, God, I will give you 50% of all of my money. And then he says, nobody gives 50%, but I'm going to give 50% gross. And he, there's this bargaining process as he's swimming to the shore and he's afraid that he won't make it. And all of a sudden he has the realization he's doing it. And he thanks God and he says, God, I'm doing it. I, it looks like I'm going to make it. And he's strengthened and he's getting closer. And as he gets relatively close to the shore, as the, voc the, the process he's in, he he says something to the effect of, and God, I will give you that 10%. And I know I said 50%, but I'm going to start with 10%. But if you don't want the 10%, you don't need to take it. And then uh, I think that the ending line is something to the effect of, uh, I know, God, it is you who saved me. But after all, you're also the one who made me sick. And that's as he's getting near the shore. And it's a funny scene. It's meant to be funny. But sometimes with humor, the, the, the humor is in the awkwardness of the reality <laughs> that a lot of us probably can sympathize with being in that situation that all of a sudden, the more stuck you are, the more relevant God is to your life. And the more you're willing to make a commitment and to live with him. But, but then if the desperation is resolved, all of a sudden there's a desire to resume. When Burt Reynolds gets to the shore, Instead of staying in that moment of when I was stuck, Lord, you heard me and you gave and you brought me back. He gets back to the shore and he's unchanged. He's, he goes back to somebody that suddenly doesn't need God as much. And if you watch the movie, you find that kind of a, some funny things happen next. Um, but for the illustration, I think a lot of us would say, yeah, there's a danger that we're quick to barge into God's presence when we're needy. But when we're not, we could easily go without God. And what we're warned is, it's not simply that you have to fear the judgment of God, but you have to be concerned about the misery of the life that you'll have if that's how you live. And yes, you need to fear the government, judgment of God, but the signs of it will be your own misery, your own usury of God and people. And so um, the application here, verse one, draw near to listen. And so we have many thoughts, many dreams, many aspirations, many desires. It's not that we can't have them. But when we come before God, if we're simply relating to God with a list of demands and a few promises of what we'll do in exchange, we're missing it. God is different from us. And rather than trying to work God into our lives, when we realize that, that we could slow down, listen, learn from God, uh, then all of a sudden we'll find that he doesn't just meet the desperate needs that we, ha that we have, but he, he also speaks into and addresses the, the ongoing ordinary needs. And so what we advocate at Emmanuel is a devotional reading of scripture, a prayerful reading. And see, see there's, there's two ways that we can get this wrong. One is uh, to have a, a prayer life that involves listening, but is not informed by the Bible. 
not that you have to have the Bible open in front of you all the time when you pray, but we're being shaped by listening to what God says. A lot of times, uh, modern spirituality, we sit and we'll listen, and we're listening for God, but 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 God is a projection of our dreams. And so God is is so tied to our desires that we're we're really listening to ourselves at times. We want the Bible to inform it. But the other mistake is to see the Bible as a textbook or a or a uh, the owner's manual for human being, and we just read it technically for information. And, and, and what we're meant to do is to recognize the Bible as God's word. It's, it's about God and what he's done and, and what he requires of us. And it, it tells us of his plan of salvation and it reminds us of his grace. And so therefore, when we read it, sometimes we have to do a technical reading. I just don't understand it. We need study tools. Sometimes in our prayer, we close the Bible and we sit and we meditate. Uh, but the main thing I just want to encourage you with today is, is to draw near to listen, uh, to let your words be few, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak all of your thoughts to God, but that there should be a genuine dialogue, a relationship. God is not somebody to enter into a contract with, but you enter into a covenant with God. And that's very different. So if we're devoted to things and using God, it will be destructive in our relationship to God, but it will also be relationship destructive in our relationship to others. And so um, verse seven, it is God you must fear. And, and sometimes Thomas Aquinas makes a difference between servile fear and familial fear. Um, familial fear, the respect you have for you know, the patriarch or matriarch in your family, uh, some old wise person who, who you revere and you honor is different than, than the servant who hates his boss but does things not to get punished. When it says to fear God, it's talking about a familial, do you love God? If you love God, fear is healthy. If you don't love God, fear is very unhealthy. Here's the thing. If you don't fear God, it's not that you're free of fear. Now, this is where things get restored in the biblical vision. When you revere God, your fear in the world lessens. But when you love things and, and fear God in a slavish way, then you will fear people. You will fear uh, your things being taken from you. And so as we relate to others with the fear of God, with reverence for God, and we're not looking to use people, um, we find an analysis here, or at least an observation of what's wrong in the world. Verse eight, if you see in the province, the, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. He says, don't be amazed when you see injustice and oppression, when you see unrighteous, dishonest behavior. Now, he's not saying by don't be amazed, it's no big deal. He's not saying, well, what's the big deal? If you read through the rest of Ecclesiastes, he often brings up oppression, and you could see it's a big deal to him. It plagues him. Uh, it troubles him so much. When he says don't be amazed, he's not saying don't be bothered by it, don't be so sensitive. He's saying don't be surprised, <laughs> that in a world where God is not feared, that the outcome in society will be that we organize ourselves such that uh, the lower you are, the more the pressure of who's being taken advantage of falls on you. And if the person above me takes advantage of me and I could sort of make my way by taking the advantage of the person below me, what about the vulnerable who have nobody under them? They're crushed, they collapse. And he's highlighting this to say, the description in verse eight is, is sort of of the person who, who is looking up to the corrupt person above them and following their pattern and example, or it's the person who sort of feels like maybe I have somebody good above me, but they, they can't see everything. And, and when they can't see, 
I'm going to go after the things that I want because I love things instead of people. I fear people or with the loss of things more than I fear God. And it creates this, uh, this system where then people don't feel I need to act with integrity at all times, but they feel that there's this secret place that I can have where nobody will see, where I could seek advantage to myself. And we know the way that works out. If one person does that, it does damage. If most people are doing it, it makes good impossible. It makes oppression ordinary. Don't be amazed when you see it because we love money. We love things. We don't love God. We don't love people. And therefore we will live in a world that has oppression. And so verse nine, it's kind of hard to, the scholars talk about how to translate it and what it means. I don't really know, but, but there's this, this possibility. Uh, there's gain in the land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields, almost if, as if to say, if you have somebody in the top who's wise and has integrity, there's, there's maybe hope for the whole thing. Maybe there will be justice, there, there will be righteousness, but don't be amazed wherever you see this falling apart. And so if we don't love God, if we don't love people, there will be a breakdown. We see that in society. But here's the last thing in this first point about what I'm describing is destructive devotion. Uh, our relationship to things will get destroyed. See, see, that's the irony. We think, well, if I love things, I don't care about God. I don't even believe God exists. Do I care about people? Why should I get bogged down, be worried about the opinions of others? Wouldn't it be nice to be free of that? I'm going to love things. But here's the thing. Uh, th things if you love them in the way that you're, you're meant to love a living being, like God or your neighbor, things will never love you back. They're not there for you when you need them. Things are to be used. Uh, the irony, if you dismiss God and people and you devote yourself to things, is that things themselves will disappoint you. They will become stressors. And so everything breaks down when we get this wrong. And so in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. That's the irony. We're told if you love God, one day you'll be satisfied. But if you love money, you won't be satisfied. If you love God, maybe you'll be satisfied with your money. Maybe you won't. But if you love your money, you won't be satisfied with God. But you also won't be satisfied with money. And so, so this is the problem of our devotion to things. We're not meant to be devoted to things. We're meant to use things, to enjoy them. We're meant to be devoted to God. We're meant to love people. And so in uh, verses 13 to 17, there, there's a picture of a, of a tragic individual. And he's described as somebody who, uh, verse 13 says, that his riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And so it's funny that this has a, this whole section has echoes of Job, if you're familiar with the book of Job, who talks about naked I came into the world. Uh, and naked I will leave when his life falls apart. It has echoes, but, but in the book of Job, what's interesting is Job is, is presented to us as righteous, as somebody who's generous. And that's what's so troubling about the book of Job. If that's true, how did his life fall apart? It seems unfair. Here's somebody where it's not quite as obviously unjust, and yet Koheleth, the, uh, the person we're hearing from, is still sympathetic. He keeps back riches to his hurt. And so um, so it's not necessarily that he's explicitly greedy or unjust, but, but he's holding on to his things and he's wanting to multiply his things. And it's, he's not presented as a fool. You know, sometimes you make, you make a choice, you make an investment. It's, it seems wise at the time. And then, you know, 
who knew that COVID would, would lock us uh, indoors for a year? And so, so how's that working, uh, you know, for your hedge fund? And so, so sometimes, you know, it could be somebody who's very wise, intends well, but here he is holding on and hoping that he will multiply in this area and it falls apart and, and he has a son and he, and he could have been enjoying what he had with his son, but instead he's storing it up so he could have even more and it all falls apart. And it's presented to us, not in a laughable way, that's what the rich get, but in a tragic way. Isn't that the nature of the world that we, we have these hopes of what the world can do, but the world is unpredictable. And wise or foolish, you, if you're holding on to things, things, maybe you'll have them, maybe you won't. But if your hope is in them, you definitely won't have satisfaction. And that's how we, we have this. And, and that saying in verses 15 to 16, echoing Job, uh, a very tragic situation. Uh, but as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away with his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And that picture of you could acquire a lot in life, but the question is, is this life all there is? If this life is all there is, what gain is there in acquiring a lot, given how brief life feels? But if this life is not all there is, why on earth would you, would you devote the whole of your life to acquiring of things when, when you know that you'll exit the world, not able to take them with you? And so, so whatever your view is, there's a certain absurdity to devoting yourself to, to money and things. And so this idea that we, we come into the world with nothing, which means that we don't need things as much as we think we are. We go out of the world with nothing. <laughs> and so don't build your life on those things. Don't, don't love them. And the irony, verse 12, is, is the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And, and that's, I think, our dream and our dissatisfaction. We think if I have more, I will be satisfied. And the wisdom this imparts is, well, if you have more of what? Uh, verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And here's a picture of the clear conscience. The person who works with honesty and integrity, who takes what God has given him or her and uses them wisely. And sometimes there's prosperity and sometimes there's not, but there's satisfaction. Whereas if you, you, you don't need to believe in God to have a good career, but, but will you be satisfied? That, that's the challenge we're being presented with. When I think of spirituality, I think of, of the Christian life holistically, which means that, that life in this world, embodied life matters. And therefore we need to take care of ourselves. And, and, and the big categories of taking care of ourselves, I'm a big fan of saying, if you eat well, and if you sleep well and you exercise, it makes the whole of your life better. So as Christians, we're not to be obsessed necessarily with the body in any strange way, but if you wanna have a good prayer life, it helps to not be tired. <laughs> it helps not to be um, having a, your, your blood sugar drop because you're, you're eating unhealthy. And so, so taking care of your body, stewarding your body, it's not that you know, there are these strict commandments about it, but there's wisdom if you're invested in having a good spiritual life. But one thing I find is that for me, I could take care of the exercise thing by, by discipline. If I'm really tired, I could exercise if, if I need to. If I'm not feeling well, as long as I'm not sick and it wouldn't be harmful, I could do it. When it comes to eating, if there's something that I don't like that's healthy, I could eat it. I won't enjoy it, but I could, I could get it over with. Or if there's something I do like that's unhealthy, I could make the choice not to have it. I'm not you know, perfect in my discipline, but, but those are areas. But sleep, <laughs> I could go to bed at the same time every night. I could 
uh, unwind before bed and I could avoid looking at devices and I could put my room at the right temperature. But in my own life, I find I can't control sleep. I can't make sleep happen. I can make exercise happen. I can make myself eat the right things. Um, maybe some of you are different, but, but for me, I can't make sleep happen. <laughs> I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and I don't want to be awake, but there's nothing. The more that I don't want to be awake, the harder it becomes to fall asleep. And there's something there in that relationship with, with sleep. It's different. <laughs> um, and, and I think of it from a faith perspective, you could feel like you don't need God for food, even though the reality is you do God provides everything. But, but, you know, if you just work hard and if you're, if you're willing to learn, you can make a decent life for yourself. There's something about sleep that says, you know, at the end of the day, this is not something I could achieve or attain. It's, it's, it feels like it's given to me. Like I'll do everything that I can, but, but if my conscience is clear, either, either it comes or it doesn't. And that reminds me of my dependence. I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, unable to sleep. And I realize that I've been misled in, in the assumption I have about power and control in other areas. <laughs> and it reminds me in the middle of the night, um, I, I depend on God for every breath for my existence. And that's actually um, in my desire to sleep so that I would have energy for the next day. There's something good for the soul about having these occasional reminders. At the end of the day, we depend on God more than, than we need. And, and so if I'm, because why am I often not sleeping? I, you know, I'm planning on making a doctor's appointment to see if it's apnea. I suspect it's, it's anxiety. I think I'm worried about things, <laughs> uh, not superficial things, but I think I worry about things and I can't let it go. And what I need is sleep. So I have more energy to address things but it doesn't work that way because you don't have control in life. That's what Koheleth is telling us. You don't know everything. You have to depend on God. You can't just call on God when you need him, but you need to rest in God. And if we're restless, it might be because we're, we're hoping in things. We're, we're aspiring to things. And sometimes God will gently show us, are you trusting in things? <laughs> well, if you're worried, if you're really anxious, maybe this is a time to sort of let go of some of that and trust me. And so that leads us towards life-giving devotion. Destructive devotion is when things are what's hope, what you're hoping in, what you're committed to, what you're using all your time and energy for. Things will not be there for you when you need them, but God will be. And so what does a life-giving devotion look like? That's what I want to spend the rest of the time talking about. It's devotion to God. And from that devotion to love people, and does this mean that you need to have this strict life with a vow of poverty? Maybe some of you would say, this is how I would live well, but that's not what's required of us. God has filled the world with things to use, but you use them in your devotion to God and in your love for people. You don't use God and people in your devotion to things. That's how we get things ordered. So in verse two, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's his theology. There's a greatness, a vastness to God that if you just come in as if God is just a person like you, as somebody that you could broker a deal with, you're misunderstanding things. And so on the one hand, by saying God is in heaven and you are on earth, there's something humbling that, that taps us into the, transition, uh, the transcendence and the majesty. Don't you know the greatness of God? Don't just come in thinking you know what you need and making a list of demands, but, but maybe you don't even know what you need and God does. Why don't you you draw near to God to listen and learn rather than to make demands. 
But there's also an implied problem of God being in heaven and us being on earth. And this is a problem for Koheleth throughout the whole book. God being in heaven and our being on earth, that separation is troubling for him. And it's troubling for us because not only is God out there, but but here we are and this world is not satisfying. And you read Genesis 3 and after Adam has turned from God by not listening to him, God comes walking through the garden. There's a sense in which heaven and earth were united. There wasn't a separation between God and man, but God was present and God was good and Adam could have related to God. But instead, there was a, a separation where Adam went and hid in the bushes because he was ashamed that he didn't listen to God. And now the experience of humanity is God is out there in the heavens. We can't even conceive of it. And here we are on earth and we're dissatisfied. And, and the best we can do is try to satisfy us with the things of the earth, even though all of us know it's a hamster wheel. We're tiring ourselves out, never satisfied. And so, so the book of Ecclesiastes taps us into the trajectory of the Bible that, that shows us that the Christian story is different, which is that human beings, secular or religious, will always aspire to, to, to go into God's presence. And so there could be the fool who gives no thought to God, doesn't see how things works, and treats God like Santa Claus, wanting to make a list of, of wishes. Um, but the person who is not foolish, who's really paying attention to the world and who wants meaning, finds themselves over time um, unable to find God, to get into his presence. You, you, true spiritual life realizes it's too burdensome. I'm never good enough. How do I cross the divide here on earth? How do I get to heaven where God is? Not so I could use him, but so that I could gain from him. And that's the kind of thing that plagues Koheleth. It seems impossible. The Christian story is that this problem of God being in heaven and earth is never solved by your making your way into heaven. The only way it's solved is by God making his way to earth. And that's where Ecclesiastes moves us along in God's story and until that divide is crossed by Jesus. That's the story of Jesus, that he comes into this world, incarnation, he's born. And he lives an upright life and then he's crucified. And if there's a verse we could tap in from this passage that reminds us of just how crucial that is, human beings love things, but we need God. God doesn't need us but he loves us. And so Jesus comes into the world. And I would think as the Bible describes him as the second Adam, that he would, he would show up as a fully formed human being to instruct us. Um, but that's not how he comes. He's born into the world. And, and therefore there's echoes of verse 15. Uh, as he came from his mother's womb, he was born to a human being. Uh, so shall he go again, naked as he came. Th this is the nature of the incarnation. Jesus, the glorious king, comes to the earth, but he comes to us in the form of humanity, but helpless humanity. Who's more helpless than a baby? He comes into the world naked. And it says, naked as he came, shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Uh, how is the story of Jesus different than this? Here you have somebody who holds on to his wealth, comes into the world naked, leaves the world naked, and has nothing to gain for his toil. The story of Jesus is he's somebody who doesn't hold on to his wealth. He comes into the world naked. And you read the gospel counties on the cross and the Roman soldiers are casting lots for his garments. They're not saying when he dies, we'll take him down and take his clothes. They're, they're casting lots for his garments right there. Jesus begins his life naked, incarnation. He ends his life crucified, naked, put on display. He goes out of this world having acquired no things. He didn't occupy himself with them. 
but he lived an upright, godly, honorable life. The person in Ecclesiastes holds on to his riches, comes into the world naked, leaves the world naked, gains nothing for his toil. Jesus does not hold on to his possessions, comes into the world naked, leaves the world naked, but he does gain something. Uh, he didn't come for wealth, he came for us. And so the gain of Jesus is to bring glory to the Father and to bring the Father's love to the children who then leave the world naked, perhaps without possessions, <laughs> but in possession of eternal life. And that is what frees us from the love of things to realize not simply that God is lovable, but, but God loved us, not things. And God will give us the things we need. Don't love the things, love the God who loved you. And so that line in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, um, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, um, he, if he became poor for your sake, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so verse 19 points us in the direction, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. And you could find yourself reading a class, Ecclesiastes and saying, what is the gift of God? But you get to the New Testament and it speaks a lot more about the gift of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you've been saved, by faith, not through work, so that nobody should boast. This is God's gift. You will never make your way out of this earth into some glorious existence apart from God, but that doesn't mean your life is hopeless. God crosses that divide. He gives you what you need through Christ, and with life, then all of a sudden, you can find the beginnings of satisfaction. And so <clears throat> I'm going to end just going through, through three things that we see in verse 19. Um, first, everyone to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them. You know, the reality is in this world, you don't need God for wealth and possessions. You, you need to work hard. You need to be willing to learn. Maybe you'll get rich. Maybe you won't. God is ultimately the one behind it, but you don't need to know that. You don't need to observe that. The question is, do you have the power to enjoy them? And that's what we often see in the world. People who have everything, they've gained the whole world, but they've lost their souls. Uh, they have no power to enjoy them. And, and where it says God gives wealth and possessions, the thing that troubles us is the, the unequal distribution. Why does God give a lot of wealth to some and very little to others? And the better question we have is why does God give the power to enjoy them to some and not to others? And that's where you find we misunderstand the world. When we love possessions, we're angry with God. But when we realize sometimes people have great possessions, but no joy. And there are people that have very little, but they know the love of God and they have great joy. And all of a sudden you realize there's an opportunity we have if we have the eyes of faith to see it, that we miss when we love things and use God. And so uh, one thing that we should recognize is that sort of like me with sleep. I could exercise, I could eat right, but I don't know that I can sleep. You could work, you could invest, you can attain things, but, but joy is not something you could earn. It's gonna to come to you. And if you don't know the love of God, you won't have lasting joy. And so we're told God will give you joy, uh, but don't just make a deal with him for it. <laughs> love him and see where it comes up in your life. A second thing verse 19 says is, it describes a person who accepts his lot 
That's a description of contentment. Look, the Christian should be ambitious. It's not, you know, uh, look at your situation and don't try to change it. You should be eager to change it. But part of the problem is when you realize, I don't have the power to change everything. Uh, so I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be ambitious, but I'm going to accept what I have. Our problem when we're devoted to things is we're so devoted to change that we can't accept the inability to change or our failures. Are you somebody who's okay failing? Are you somebody who can aspire to things you don't yet have and not be filled with envy? Can you be satisfied? Contentment is possible. We can be content even in a world where we lack. Um, but part of that contentment is rooted in the hope that, that God will give us what we need and that we have a reward for our lives. If our only hope is in things, you'll never have contentment. And so can you accept your lot? And here's the last part of that, to rejoice in your toil. Uh, we think that meaningful work has to be where, where you have the dream job, but very few people get the dream job. <laughs> the New Testament vision is that whatever you do, in word or in deed, you do it for God's glory. Whatever gifts you have, whatever stewardship, whatever employment, whatever opportunity you have, you can do it, not like the person in the corrupt system who, who feels there's areas of not seen that you could use for your advantage, but rather who feels that, that God sees all that you're doing and therefore everything has the potential to, to be done in life with him. And, and therefore, no matter what the task, life can be meaningful. And so this gives a very different vision of life, a vision that's in the New Testament is in line with 1 Timothy 6. If you want to do some homework this week, read 1 Timothy 6. I'm going to read you two portions, uh, verses 6 to 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There it is, a, the theology of Ecclesiastes brought to fullness because of Jesus Christ. We will be content with godliness and contentment. There's great gain. <laughs> Kohelet says there's no gain for all of our toil. The New Testament says there is, but it's not going to be from riches. It's going to be from the love of God. And so uh, the, the problem is we either have this secularized worldly vision where we say, I have no imagination for anything beyond this world. And so I'm going to devote myself to the things, even though that I know that they disappoint, but it's the best I can do. I have no faith in God. So I have faith in things. We're warned about that. But the, the pendulum could swing the other way that we think the only way to have a true spiritual life is to renounce everything and live a miserable life. So God will be pleased with us so that he could reward us. And that's not the Christian vision. First uh, Timothy 6 goes on in verses 17, 19 and says, For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the vision. Not that a rich person is, is wicked and needs to get rid of their riches, but the rich person shouldn't hold on to their wealth to their hurt because one day they may lose it in a bad venture. If whatever God has given you, whether it's, it's wealth as the world sees it or whether it's wealth as it, relative to yourself and your upbringing, whatever God has given you, if you use it generously in love for God and love for others, well, then there's contentment. You, could, you can enjoy it when you have it and you can be okay when you don't but you're taking hold of that which is truly life. Um, 
so as, as you apply this to your life, uh, this is a time, this time of COVID, where the systems are not working. It's, it's, it's anxious-inducing for most of us. The things that we hope in aren't there. Our aspirations are frustrated. Uh, the things that normally work for us, the things that we normally do aren't there. And it's an uncomfortable period. And maybe you'd be tempted to bargain with God. God, if you fix this quickly, here's the thing that I will do for you. I think before we should do that, we should be quick to listen. <laughs> Because one of the lessons we're learning is, is this world will not satisfy. We, we can't control everything. There are ups and there are downs, but that doesn't mean we're without hope. And so the question is now is not, am I a bad person? Have I not been religious enough? Am I being judged? And now I hear about uh, this admonition to have joy in the Lord. Now I have to feel guilty. I don't have enough joy in the Lord. That would be a bad takeaway. The takeaway is if you're seeing that you're not satisfied in life. You're starting to be anxious and you're starting to be worried. Um, there is a hope that will be a foundation, but it's, it's not gonna be a hope in your career or your brand or your possessions or your achievements. Those things uh, are unstable. You're not gonna leave the world with any of them, but there is a hope that one came into the world to join his life with yours. And, and if you trust him, if you rest in him, if you believe that you will be okay, not because of what you will do, but because he's already done something for you. If that stirs in you a thankfulness and a love and a gratitude, it doesn't mean that you now don't need anything in life, but it, it means that you don't need to serve like a slave the things in life, but that you could take what's given to you and you could enjoy them. Um, and you could be like St. Nicholas, not some fictionalized human being who flies through the air and gives coal to bad children, but somebody who takes what he has and finds joy in giving it to others, even if the other person never finds out about it. Um, as a test for the fear of God, the thought that God sees everything that you're doing, does that terrify you? If it does, you need to change your life because the greatest comfort is that God sees everything we're doing because in the injustice of the world, when we have no control and, and we're told that God sees, and he will make things right one day. We're comforted. And in the good that you do that nobody appreciates, to know that God sees and he's pleased that you can do good, not so that other people will be indebted to you, not as a deal to control God so that he'll be nice to you, but because it's your joy in life, <laughs> because God has given you all things and you're going to take the most of your life and live it for God's glory, trusting that he sees and is pleased. That's a whole different way to live. And that's not instinctive, but that's what the word teaches us to do. If you trust God, you can find satisfaction when you take hold of that, which is truly life. What is truly life? It's the gift of God. It's what he can give you through Christ. Hold on to that. Love God, love people. And if God has given you things, use them, enjoy them. Uh, but make sure that you love God. Let me pray for us. Our father we so quickly depend on what we can see. We believe in what we can see and we see very little. Uh, what we see disappoints us and we, we are frustrated and we're anxious. And what we need is that which is truly life. And we know that you promise it. We know that you give it. We pray that it would take roots in our hearts and minds so that we would experience the freedom of Christ, that we would have the forgiveness of our sins, that we would receive the grace that you've offered to us and that through that grace, we would be changed to be people who pursue satisfaction in you and experience it in growing ways that our, our, our div lives devoted to you would be life-giving.
spare us our own folly and foolishness and grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.